understand is Paul wrote a lot to this church, to the church that was at Corinth, the church that Paul planted in Acts 18, this church that Paul spent a year and a half of his life building and pouring into. Paul had a lot to say to them. There's a lot of issues going on around them. So Paul's first letter was very corrective in nature. It was like, listen, there's a few things that are happening that I have to correct. Like you're young, you're babes in the faith, and he goes, I want to see you grow into maturity. And, and that was kind of like the, the flow of 1 Corinthians. But this book, 2 Corinthians, is really more of like that pastoral fatherly heart where he's comforting them, he's encouraging them, he's saying, hey, here's now how to live as being a new creation in Christ here's how you ought to walk and live and do life. And so we want to know, how do we live life in 2021 as followers of Jesus? 2 Corinthians is a great book to show us how to live, how to view God, how to view each other, uh, what mindsets we take into the world. So I'm very thankful for this book. So just a little review again. Last week, we, we looked at a passage that we could just kind of titled um, Loving Difficult People because Paul shows us what it's like to love difficult people. Paul talked about putting others' joy ahead of his own. Paul talked about how basically there was a time where he needed to correct and discipline. And then there's a time since that correction and discipline worked, he goes, forgive the person, bring, that, bring them back into, the, the, into relationship, into community. And we looked at just how essentially love forgives. And so we talked about love in this, like, in this broad way of what does it mean to love difficult people. Now, Paul's continuing this, just so you know where we're at, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, where we pick back up. Paul is kind of using the first couple chapters for us. This is like an intro. It's just what's been going on, what's happening, and really we kind of see what's happening in his ministry and life. But he's revealing like there's been some painful moments. There's been some moments that have been incredibly difficult. And here what we're going to see is, at different times you can see so far, Paul feels like there's been a loss. Paul feels like at different times he's been losing. And in a sense, he's reminding everyone in our section today, in our chapter today, even though at times he feels like he's losing, he's really a winner in Christ. Even though it feels like he took an L, he's like, no, I have a W in Christ. He's basically saying, in Christ, I am triumphant. In Christ, we are victorious. In Christ, even though it feels like we're losing, the circumstances might look like we're losing. In reality, God's doing something behind the scenes we're winning. And I think he's just reminding us that at times when you feel like you're losing, you're winning, if you're in Christ. And so I just want to look at this. I want to talk about this. I want to embrace this. This was a theme of Paul's. He does this in Romans 8. So I kind of want to stand back and look at this, this text today, see what was going on specifically, but see the mindset he's trying to impart to the Corinthians, which is even when you feel like you're losing, know that you have victory and you've won in Christ. And so the title today is The Sweet Smell of Victory. And you'll see why from our text, The Sweet Smell of Victory. I told my wife I was going to title this, What's That Smell? And she's like, you cannot do that. You cannot title this, What's That Smell? All right, so it's The Sweet Smell of victory. You'll see why. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I know it's so stupid. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Here's what Paul's saying. He says, when I came to Troas, it's a city in modern-day Turkey, to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a, a door was opened to me in the, for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave uh, of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? 
Chapter 3, verse 5, he answers, who's sufficient? And he says, that's us. We're sufficient. Verse 17, he says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as of men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We'll be looking at these six verses, and I just want to say again, keep in mind this context. A, A brother who sinned, a brother who caused a lot of issues, he can't find Titus. And he's saying, you know, you know we, have, we have triumph. We have victory in Christ. We can't forget that even in our loss, we're the aroma of Christ to the world around us. We're the fragrance of Christ. Sometimes it can be a fragrance that smells like death. Sometimes it can be a fragrance that smells like life. And so we just want to unpack this. Like, what does that mean? What is he getting at? And what mindset did Paul have in the midst of what seemed like loss after loss after loss? So can we just pray and just invite the Lord just to speak to us? Let's see, let's bow our heads, pray, and just spend some time. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this book. God, we thank you for these incredible truths you reveal to us, you show us, you just kind of drop in as Paul is just going through just a normal intro. We, we find some incredible truth to live by. And God, I just ask that you would change our, our heart, our mindset. God, I know that there's maybe even this year for a lot of us, there's, there's, it feels like there's been some loss but just remind us of the triumph and victory we have in you, Jesus. Just remind us of our role to this world, just to be that sweet-smelling aroma of you, Jesus. And so I ask God, just in the midst of um, just maybe a, a, a frustrating season for some of us, an exhausting season, that God, you remind us that we are more than conquerors in you, Jesus. That you just speak to our hearts, that you do something within our church and our community, God, that you'd raise up people, men of sincerity, women of sincerity, commissioned by you, preaching the gospel faithfully. God, we ask for just more of that in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. You know, I I know we know this, but I think we can all agree that our sense of smell is an incredibly powerful sense. When you think about just like smell and what it does or what it brings you back to, smell is so weird. Like smell is one of those things where I can smell something and it can take me back to like a specific moment. Almost like it's just like a time machine. Like I'm like, oh my gosh, I know where I was. I was like on that boat. And there's this kid, and he had a cup, and he tripped and fell and spilled on himself. And, like, it's weird how, like, scent can really bring you back. It's funny. I was reading some articles about, just about the power of smell and how advertisers and marketers are really, like, obviously trying to, like, give themselves over to this. The thought of, like, how can we make our product even have a smell now attached to it? So when people walk in our store, they smell something, and they think a certain way, and it just brings them back to this, like, common thought. And they're trying to even use smell in marketing terms. And I think about that. When I was a kid, it's funny. Like, walking into Disneyland truly was magical. Like, I grew up in Southern California. We went to Disneyland, and it's like 20 minutes away, and we walk in, and you just like smell like there's something in the air. And I was like, reading about this, like there truly is something in the air. They actually spray like vanilla in the air to like captivate you, and to like make it even more magical. And so like I wanted to research this, so I, I read this. I thought it was funny. Uh, they, you know, I think they're called like Imagineers, or what are they called? Like Imagine, you Disney people. I know you know, but you're like ashamed to say it. Um, the Imagineer people. Here, here's what this article said. It says, there's machines giving off specific aromas in certain areas of the parks or on certain attractions, and they would call the smellitizers. Those Disney people, man. The smellitizers. It says, you walk down Main Street, and in any of the Disney parks around the world, any chances are you're smelling vanilla. And I'm like, I knew it. And the sense of baking cookies. They're geniuses. Uh, 
If you're staying in line for Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, the smell of the salty sea will pervade the air. Uh, while there's honey scents on the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh and burning lumber on Spaceship Earth, where you see a depiction of the fall of Rome. Like there's, there's geniuses, how they throw this, like, notice this next time you walk in. Because there's something about just the, the power of smell. There's something about what it does, what it takes us to. We can associate really good things in our life with smell. We can associate really traumatic and difficult things with the power of smell. Uh, I was reading some just like Harvard research on just the power of smell, and I thought this was interesting. They said, smell is often considered the most significant trigger of memory compared to any other senses. Smell will trigger your memory more than any other sense, more than even sight. They talked about just what part of the brain it accesses and why it will take you back to a specific moment, that, that smell. And it's funny, I think about this different aromas. Like, this might sound weird. I remember my dad had like a smell. Like, I don't, I can't, like, never smelt it other than him. Like, this musk. You're like, what is that? Like, I don't know. He just has a, I don't know if I have that. So there's like a certain smell, right? You think about it in that way. I think that's funny. Kimber, my wife, her dad owned a, a small asphalt company growing up. So her whole life, she was around asphalt and like just drying wet asphalt. She loves the smell of asphalt. Like, I hate the smell of like that burning asphalt. I don't know if we like, you love it or hate it. She's like, oh, burning like asphalt that's drying. I'm like, that's disgusting. Like, it smells so gross. But she's like, it reminds me of my dad. I'm like, get a new smell. Like, that's just, I don't like that one. It's just so bizarre. And it's funny because, again, we all have, like, those things. Like, obviously, like, for me, it's, like, chocolate chip cookies. It, I, the smell of my, our children, like, when they're four, like, the smell of a newborn baby, there's, like, no better smell. Now you're like, that's weird. I don't care. Like, the smell of, like, a newborn baby or the smell for somebody, like, your new car, it's just crazy what the power of smell does. And here's why I'm spending so much time on this. There is this aroma of Christ. There is this certain smell of people who've been around Jesus, who've spent time with Jesus, that eventually you go, man, and you sit at the feet of Jesus for so long, you begin to smell like him. That you spend so much time with him, the aroma of Christ just kind of just goes off and, and goes into your life. Listen to how one author said this. I love this, this comment. He said, listen, a sweet aroma of Christ, it does not consist so much in what we do, but in our manner of doing it. Not so much in our words or deeds, as in an indefinable sweetness, tenderness, courtesy, unselfishness, and desire to please others to, to their deriving its aroma from fellowship with him. Wrap the habits of your soul in the sweet lavender of your Lord's character. Just how do we spend time with Christ in such a way where the aroma of Christ, the fragrance of Christ, is just rubbing off on us? And so as we talk through this, this idea of like victory in Christ, and there is truly in this time period, there was a smell associated with victory. He's saying you need to have the smell of victory in Christ. So as we just kind of break down our text today, because this is an interesting six verses, there's almost word pictures Paul uses that I'm just going to use to kind of direct our text. So here's the idea. We're going to look at doors opened, uh, parades marched, fragrance smelled, and preachers sent. That's just kind of how we're going to break down our text. So let's look at the first one. Doors opened. Doors opened. Let's read verse 12. What's going on with Paul again? Verse 12. What's happening? Paul says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. All right, what's happening? The door's open. So Paul and Titus. Paul was trying to get together with Titus for a couple of different reasons. Titus, we know, was just like a son in the faith. There's obviously the book of Titus. Uh, Paul loved Titus, spent time with Titus. Titus was supposed to give a report of the Corinthians to Paul. He was supposed to meet up with him in Troas. Now, 
Troas is in the book of Acts. You can read this. This was a city where Paul went a couple different times. But if you remember in Acts 20, Paul was in Troas, and it says he's preaching the gospel all night long. And there's a man named Eutychus in the third story window listening who fell asleep and fell to his death, right? And then Paul goes over and embraces him, and he comes back to life. That was in Troas. I just don't know why. That is like the most random, funny story to me. I've, I've seen people sleep. I've never, like, luckily no one's ever died yet uh, for my preaching. And just Paul brings him back to life. That was in Troas. And it's funny to me that Paul says, in that place, a door was open opened in the Lord. Like in the place where Eutychus died? Like, yeah, that was the place, man, where I just had favor from God, right? And so here's the idea. He couldn't find Titus, so he heads to Macedonia, like northern Greece area. Now, why does this really matter? I bring this up because obviously in a day and age, like we obviously have cell phones. We have a way to get a hold of each other, even if not. This was like, I couldn't find Titus. Did he die? Was he kidnapped? What's going on? What's going on with the Corinthians? There's like heartache. There's pain. He goes, I had a ministry opportunity uh, from the Lord in trust. A door was open to me, but I wasn't content there, so I went to Macedonia. We find later in chapter 7, just so you know, like fun fact, in chapter 7, verse 5 and 6, uh, Paul does meet uh, Titus in Macedonia. So he goes to Macedonia, and we're told that's where he meets Titus and gets a good report of the Corinthians there. For the reason why I'm spending some time on this, I just want you to know the context of what was happening, but I also just want to look at this phrase, a door was open to me from the Lord. Uh, it's pretty clear that obviously this door in Paul's life for like effective ministry and trust, God's giving him opportunity, but he didn't walk through it. He's like, I need, to, I need to find a reunite with Titus. Now, here's why I'm bringing this up. I want to talk about this. I want to like look at this idea of open door theology for a second. Um, because I think this, this is a phrase that we can use in the church, and it can maybe be abused at times, but it's also at the same time a very biblical phrase. So let's just talk about this. If you've ever heard, or maybe you've said, man, you know what? I was like praying about it, but there's just, there's just no door open, so I just couldn't go. You're like, okay. Like, so there's no door. You can't like knock or seek or ask. No. No door open, right? Or it can be just reversed. Like, a, a door is open, so I just had to walk through it. It's like, really? Like, yeah, like, there was a plane ticket to Paris. So I just thought I'd move there. Like, okay. And we, we talk about sometimes this open door theology kind of flippantly. Now, I, I do want to be really clear. A lot of times the Bible, actually many times the Bible uses this phrase to describe God's will. So I don't want to demean it. Like, the Bible uses this phrase like, hey, there's a door open to me. Meaning God provided, normally it's like a gospel opportunity a way to, to just further the gospel, and I have to walk through it. Paul didn't walk through this door, I find interesting. Paul actually uses this phrase a couple different times in case you've read this, but let me just throw a couple out here. Uh, one is in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3. Paul says this, he says, pray for us, pray also for us, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. Paul's like, there's not a door open. Would you guys pray that a door would be opened? Let me say this. It's okay to pray for doors to be opened. I do think Jesus, he tells us this. You have not because you ask not, and you receive not because you ask amiss. But Jesus would talk about this in Luke where he basically says, ask, seek, knock. We're told to knock. We're told, hey, Lord, we're asking, would you open this door for us? Paul's like, would you just pray a door be opened so that I can share the gospel more effectively where I'm at? You know, Paul actually uses this phrase another time in 1 Corinthians 16. And notice what he says here in 1 Corinthians 16. Paul says, I will wait or tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? For a great and effective door has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Another time, Paul's like, you know what? I'm going to stay here in the city of Ephesus because God has opened up this door to me, and I can't leave it. And know what's crazy about this open door? There's many adversaries behind that door. <laughs> You know, when we think about an open door, and he's like, you know what, I'm going to walk through this door, even though I can see on the other side, there's a lot of people challenging this and not wanting me to go through this, but I have to go through this. The reason why I'm bringing this up is it's not so simple about open doors, closed doors. 
Meaning, just because the door is closed doesn't mean the Lord doesn't want you to knock. Doesn't mean the Lord doesn't want you to go through. If it's open, doesn't mean he wants to go through it. There's actually times where doors were opened in the Bible and they didn't go through it. This was one of them here in 2 Corinthians. Paul's like, there's an open door, but just wasn't at peace. I wasn't content. You know, discerning the will of God is so much more complex than I think just open door theology. But at the same time, it might just be the Lord. It's one of those things where I've had people like, what do you think? Is this the Lord? I'm like, I don't know. Pray, fast, discern, hold it to Scripture. You know, there's so many more avenues and facets to this. I just think this is so interesting because I have, you know, when I spend time with Christians, we sometimes can almost buy, like, we can almost fall trapped to this idea a little too much. It's like, you know what? I went on Indeed.com and I applied for this one job and the door didn't open up, so I'm just kind of going to give up and stay home. It's like, no, 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 like, keep applying. Like, maybe you need to just, you know, keep knocking a little bit more. I just think we kind of have a funny mindset at times. There's a, a great author, his name is Kevin DeYoung, and he wrote about this about God's will and this open door idea. And here's what he said. He says, Christians often use open door theology to bless whatever bad idea they've already decided to do. <laughs> I know my marriage is in shambles. My wife wants me around more so we can work things out. But God has opened the door for me to get a big promotion. Uh, the work will require, require me to travel 30 weeks a year and be away from my wife more than ever. But God must be leading me to take this, or, this job or else he wouldn't have opened the door. Like we laugh, but like literally these are things I hear, Right? Like, you must at one expense, you, you know God's will would be like, obviously provide for family, take care of your wife. But you might think, oh, but there's an open door or opportunity, so therefore I'll sacrifice this for this. All I'm trying to get at is it's probably a little more thorough or complex. It's something you want to discern with others. You know, I do love this. I, I think there was this more mindset back in the day. We have such an independent culture and mindset. We don't want other spiritual leaders speaking into our decisions. We don't want other people who love Jesus or are mature or wise. We want to be alone and on an island. We don't want anyone to challenge us. And it's funny, I've definitely noticed this, and it's difficult. I think at times you're trying to love people. You care for people so much, and they make huge life decisions alone by themselves. And I say this, hold it to community. Uh, seek out wise counsel. In the multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. There might be something where just because it's the doors open doesn't mean it's from the Lord. We have to be wise with it. It's so easy for Jonah to be like, but God, there was a boat that was available for me to go to Tarshish. I mean, you open the door. Like, we can do this. Jonah probably did that. We have to be just aware. We just have to be aware that just because there's an open door doesn't mean it's the Lord. Hey, but the open door could be the Lord. But discern it with Scripture, with others. Challenge your motives, your reasons. You know, there are some men that I'll say, hey, I'm thinking about this or praying about this, and they'll challenge my motives and reasons. And I don't like it. I'm like anyone else. I don't like it, but I need it. And it's healthy, and it's good. And I just want to th- like challenge this a little bit. Kevin DeYoung went on to say in his book, listen to this. He goes, here's the bottom line. If God opens the door for you to do something you know is good or necessary, be thankful for the opportunity. But other than that, don't assume that the relative ease of difficulty Relative ease or difficulty of a new situation is God's way of telling you to do one thing or the other. Remember, God's will for your life is your sanctification. And God tends to use discomfort and trials more than comfort and ease to make us holy. So just because the door is open and it's easy doesn't mean it's from the Lord. One, one story that I wanna, I'm going to reference back in another point, so stay with me. In the book of Acts chapter 16, remember there's this girl going around saying, Paul and Silas, your work is of God, your servants of God, and you speak the truth of God. And Paul's like, demon, get out of this little girl, right? If you read the story, you're like, this is crazy. I know, it's Acts 16. Paul casts this demon out of this girl. 
uh, she was making money for some merchants. They get mad. They take them, throw them in prison. Paul and Silas are in prison. If you remember the story, they're in prison at night, at midnight. They're just singing hymns to God. They're praising God. All the other prisoners are hearing this. They're praising God, worshiping God. Do you know what happens next? It says the prison doors open. The jailer walks in. We don't know how far later, but he walks in, sees open prison doors, and begins to freak out like you would. And here's what it says in Acts 16, uh, 26. Immediately, it says, all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, uh, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Doors open. Like, if I'm in prison and the prison doors open as I'm worshiping Jesus, I'm like, Jesus, you open these doors. I'm going to walk. Like, I don't know why you, like, why would you stay? You'd be like, it's pretty obvious Jesus wants us to walk through these prison doors. Like, we're worshiping. They just opened, right? But they decided to stay. And that led to this man's salvation. And it led to his whole family's salvation. I suggest to you it led to all the prisoners' salvation because they all stayed. (laughs) What I'm, what I'm trying to get at is that God obviously opened the doors, and Paul goes, but we're going to stay. We'll walk through them when it's, when it's time. I just think there's, it's not as easy as we might make it out to be. Spend some time with the Lord on some decisions. Jonah could justify the open door for the boat for him to leave. Just spend some time with the Lord on this. There's an open door for Paul to spend time in trust because, no, I, I need to find a Titus. I just want to briefly address this because I do think at the same time in Revelation 3 verse 8, we're told uh, that Jesus says this. He says, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Like we're told from Jesus, like Jesus, like, hey, I've given you, I've given this church an open door for ministry. What I've opened, no one can shut. It'll stay opened if it's from the Lord. If the Lord's in it, he's like, no one can shut this. Don't stress over it. Don't think you've missed that window or that opportunity. If I've truly opened the door, no one can shut it. No one can close it. I just want to speak into this because, again, as Paul is looking at his ministry and life, and it, it felt like a loss. People are at odds. People he has to correct people challenging his authority. He can't find Titus. Maybe he's dead. Maybe he's in prison. And you just see Paul just kind of now responding to this, which leads to my second point, which is we see parades marched. What do I mean by that? We're going to see Paul refer back to this Roman tradition of it. It's just called a Roman triumph. And this is the language Paul is using to say, hey, you know what, though? Even though it feels like we're losing, we're winning. Look at verse 14. It says, but thanks, but thanks be to God. Couldn't find Titus. Kind of messed up. I had to go to Macedonia to change my plans. But he finds time to even worship. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Parades march. What am I, what am I getting at? Paul's like, even though it feels like and looks like we're losing, thanks be to God. He always leads us in triumphal procession. Another version is we're always triumphant in Christ. That, you know what? I got to go to Tras and leave the fragrance of Christ there. I got to go to these different areas, and you know what? God knew that he was just spreading me out and so that the fragrance of Christ could be taken with me. Here's honestly what I'm getting. I think this is so interesting. Paul kind of in the middle of just talking about his travel plans, what he's walking through, what he's going through. Think of the greater context. He's walking through a lot of different things with his church. And he's like, you know what? I just want to stop here and say thanks be to God. Even though it kind of looks like I'm complaining, even though it kind of looks like things were like losing, thanks be to God. He's so good. We're always triumphant in him. We're actually always part of this like triumphant parade, this, this triumphal procession. And he finds time to, like, to break out into worship and song, even though it looks like they're losing. Like, let's be honest. There are times, and there have been times in my life and in your life, where you feel like you're losing. And I honestly think we need to shift perspectives a little bit 
And to realize, but wait, in Christ I am triumphant. God, you're doing something. You allowed me to lead the realm of Christ here, or you allowed there to be some sort of work or action associated to what appeared to be a loss, but in reality, God, it was a victory. I mean, how often do we see this in Scripture? You know, one of these stories, I will share briefly, because I, I know many of you know our story, but I don't want to get too much lost or into this. But it's one of those things in my life that felt like a loss, but in reality, it was a victory, where uh, my wife and I dated for three and a half years, and I won't spend too much time on this, but we got married a little young. I was 19, she was 20. I know we're freaks, uh, but we're dating three and a half years. Uh, at like 17, 18, I felt that strong call into ministry. Graduate high school at 17. Uh, I started working at a gym. I started working as a church 40 hours a week as a janitor. God just completely kind of changed the trajectory of my life. It was very bizarre. Uh, right before our wedding day, um, you know, or like right, two days before our wedding day, I got offered like a dream job at uh, Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa to work in the college ministry and to read books and review them. I have no idea why you do that to an 18-year-old, but I got that job. Amazing! It was uh, January of 2008 or, or February 2008. Get back from my honeymoon, start this new job. Now, I started a new job during probably one of the worst economic years and crises ever, right? So, so July hits of 2008. Uh, things start crashing terribly. I just turned 20, newly married, have, like, for me, just a, an incredible opportunity, but you hear of all these job cuts that are coming. Now, at that time, I was asked to lead a missions trip to Austria. Like, hey, would you go to Austria and, and teach the youth there? And I was like, yes, I would love that. This is in July. I'm like, oh my gosh, my job is sealed. Like, this is great. They would never ask me to lead a mission trip to Austria and then fire me. The next week, I get let go. And so I meet with the pastors. I go, hey, um, do you still want me to lead this trip to Austria? Like, I'm five months married. And you kind of need a job. Like, we would love for you to lead it. What they did was they let go of everyone who was underneath a year. That's how they did it. They said, if you've been here on staff underneath a year, you're let go. So they're like, yeah, we'd still love for you to lead. Of course, this is not really our decision. We just kind of had to do this for everyone under a year. That's kind of how we did it this year. I'm like, okay, sweet. So we still go. And we're panicking. I'm panicking. You know, newly married, right? Talking to my father-in-law like eight months ago. Like, we'll be fine. <laughs> not like that, but like, we'll do whatever it takes, right? And I just remember going there and just being so open. Like, Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but we're open to whatever it is you're doing. Like, I don't know why you'd have us be a part of this and do this. I don't, I don't get it, but we're open to whatever it is you're doing. I mean, within that week and in that time period, we met the pastor at the time of Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale. And long story short, he said, hey, would you pray about moving to Florida? Which my wife and I were like in shock by because that doesn't happen very often. We're like, what do you mean? And we come visit. We end up visiting. We end up moving down in January 2009. Now, I know a lot of you know like that story somewhat or some capacity, but you have to understand. I remember seeing six months married in my apartment just with my hands on my head, just crying before God. Like, God, why would you just give me this just to take it away? And so much fear, so much anxiety. And I remember it was one of those moments where God's like, will you trust me in this moment? I remember being like, this is a moment, like, this is not even that big of a deal, right? Like in the grand scheme of things, Job is like, God, though you slay me, I will trust you. I like lost my job. I'm like, where's God? And I, it's just so funny. God's like, is that all it took? And I just remember that thought of like, is that all it took to, to rock you, to shake you? Is that all it took to question, just to create some unnecessary questions in you? And I just remember like, okay, Lord, whatever you want to do on this trip, we're open to and honestly, what appeared to be a loss, I believe, was a victory. I believe, obviously, the Lord used that to bring us here, to have us have eight wonderful years of ministry, to plant this church a few years ago. As you guys know, I'm just trying to bring up an analogy or scenario that what often appears to be a loss, God is doing something behind the scenes and says, no, this is a victory. Paul goes, I couldn't find Titus, but thanks be to God, you know what? Because we got to go to trust, we got to travel, and you know what? We got to spread the aroma of Christ everywhere we went. It appeared to be a loss, but it really was a victory. And it is one of those things. We don't, I don't love, you know, wanting to ever pull scriptures out of context, but there really is obviously this truth. Paul is talking about this triumphal procession. He goes, we are always, always and everywhere. Look at these words, always, everywhere, verse 14, that we do have to rely on the truth of God's word. That we have to believe that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. That God does love us. 
Now, we have to realize that God does truly work all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This was one of those truths I feel like I heard so often, maybe even abused at times, but I had to cling to. And if you've ever felt like you've been in a season of loss or a season of this isn't going to work out, there's no way God can redeem this, I would say cling to those scriptural truths. Cling to those promises. Because this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying it feels like a lot of losses, but thanks be to God. We're always triumphant in Christ. I mean, what a thought. What a thought to think we're always triumphant in Christ. Everywhere we go, the realm of Christ is spread. Always, everywhere, we're always triumphant in Christ. Let me just kind of even give you the context. Paul is referring to something called a Roman triumph. You can even read about this yourself, but there was these, these basically these parades or these ceremonies where if a Roman general conquered a foreign land or foreign leader and killed at least 5,000 or more, uh, they would go back to Rome with this parade or this uh, procession with like a celebration. So it could look different, but essentially there would be the general who goes back on like a golden chariot. There's crowds and people cheering. His army, his other generals and other people are behind him. Uh, They have the spoils of the war. A lot of times it actually even bring in with them the generals they conquered. And rather the generals being in all of like their their outfit and their garments, they'd actually be like stripped naked walking through the streets saying, look, here's the enemy. The enemy has lost. They've been stripped naked. Here's the spoils of war we have. We've won. We've done it. Hey, our victory is your victory. Victory, Rome. Our victory is your victory. And Paul is using this language to say we have a triumphant procession in Christ. To say, hey, Jesus's victory is our victory. And I want you to think through this. I want you to think, because don't forget, might feel like we lost a little battles, we won the war. Might feel like we've lost here and there. But we have a triumphal procession in Christ. That Jesus was the one who slayed the enemy. He disarmed principalities and powers. He, he made them a pub, public spectacle and shame. He's the one who mocks them, parades them, and say, hey, we, we've won. That through the cross, we have won. Through Christ and his work and what he's done, we have won. Paul has to remind himself and preach the cross to him, even in a time when it feels like a loss. Obviously, that's the time to preach the cross to us. The cross, which felt like defeat, was truly a victory, was truly a win. I want you to think about this. Paul actually said this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. It says, listen, Jesus disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. The same exact phrase, same exact word. That Jesus, he, he, another translation says he brought like the spoils, like he disarmed or despoiled them. This word for disarmed is literally he unclothed them. Think about that. He disarmed principalities and powers. He goes, I, I've, I've unclothed you. Just what those Roman rulers would do to those generals they defeated. Satan, you're unclothed. I made a mockery out of you. One of my favorite verses, that sounds weird, but in Isaiah 14, 16, after it's done talking about Satan and who he is, I will be like the most high, I will be like God. Uh, it goes on to say in Isaiah 14, he goes, the world will look at you and say, was this the one that made the earth tremble? Was this the one that shook the earth? Jesus made a public spectacle of Satan, of principalities, of powers. Jesus was unclothed on the cross. He was stripped naked. He was the one who seemed to be defeated, but he goes, no, no, my unclothing will be your unclothing. My shame will lead to your shame, a greater shame. I've disarmed you. You think you've disarmed me? I've disarmed you in this process. Paul is reminding himself of this Roman triumph. Paul, who would really understand Greek and Roman culture well, is going, we have this triumphal procession, this triumphal parade in Christ, where the enemy is dragged through the streets. And just like the enemy would be dragged through the streets, brought to an arena called Circus Maximus, and this is true, and they'd either fight like a lion or something and lead to their death, and people would cheer, truly making a public spectacle of them. Jesus is going, I've disarmed the enemy. I'll make a public spectacle, Colossians 2.15, of them triumphing over them. 
Paul is reminding us of the victory we have in Christ. He's saying, Jesus, your victory is my victory. Even though it feels like a loss, in Christ, I am victorious. I just really do believe there's something about this. In those seasons of loss, remind yourself of the cross of Christ. In those seasons of loss, remind yourself of the parade of Jesus and remind yourself how you're part of that parade. You're part of that celebration. You get to be a part of what God is doing. I love how Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, we, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, 57, he says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who through Jesus we have the victory. His victory is our victory. See, Paul could look on, and we'll read this in a couple of weeks in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul could say these words in verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Paul is basically in this, in this chapter here saying the same thing. It feels like a loss, but we are triumphant in Christ. We're not destroyed. It's been difficult, but we're not. It's not over. We might have lost a little battles here and there, but Jesus has won the war. And then... Paul leads this idea of like a parade, this triumphal procession, and he speaks of just the aroma of Christ, which leads us to number three, uh, fragrance smelled. And let's just read verse 15 and 16, what he says about this fragrance. Verse 15, let's keep reading. Paul says, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Now, really quick, Paul is basically saying, in this parade, we're that aroma of Christ. Like, what does that mean? In the parades, you'd actually have, like, Roman priests carrying incense, and the people would truly smell incense during these parades. And the idea is this. There was a smell to victory. Like, if you were a little Roman boy or girl, and you saw a general come back from war, and you got to see parades and celebration, and you saw priests carrying incense, and you smell that incense, that would be the smell of victory. Like, oh my gosh, we've won. And Paul is saying, we're like those priests. We're carrying the aroma of Christ. Like where we go, we want people to realize we are victorious in Christ. We want people to smell Christ on us. We want there to be like the aroma of Christ. For those, it's, it's from death to death. The aroma might be a stench to them. For others, it's life to life. It, they can smell Christ on us. But regardless, we are the aroma of Christ to God. Now, obviously, this word picture brings me back to John 12. And, and actually, all four Gospels were told of Mary, who brings what? This anointing oil to Jesus right before he's crucified is this nard oil, literally the word nard. They bring this nard oil to Jesus. We're told it's 300 denarii, which is essentially uh, 300 days of work, which is essentially one year's, worth of work of, uh, one year's worth of wages. So think about bringing your year's salary to the feet of Jesus. This is what Mary does. She breaks it on the feet of Jesus. And we're told in John chapter 12, verse 3, listen to this. It says, the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Then everyone criticizes her. Mary, you could have given this to the poor, right? That's Judas. You could have sold this and given this to the poor. What are you doing? They're like, yeah, Mary, what are you doing? And Jesus goes, everyone will remember this story. This story, where the gospel is preached, this story will be preached. Where people know about me, people will know about Mary and this sacrifice and this aroma and this sense. And I think about this, like worship wasn't a beautiful, Mary's worship going to Jesus at his feet brought this beautiful aroma and scent to the entire house. See, worship does that. When you worship, do people who are truly worshipers of Jesus, you notice like to be around a worshiper of Jesus, there's this scent or aroma or fragrance that just goes with them. It fills the house. This aroma filled the house. It's on her hair. It's on Jesus' feet, on Jesus' clothes. The very last thing that just stripped from Jesus, his garments, you wonder if he just got one more whiff of her sacrifice, one more whiff of that smell, one more, one more whiff of just that aroma that he, she poured on him, out on him on the night before. This was just a, set, a sense of sacrifice. My thing is this, we are to be obviously worshipers wherever we go to carry the aroma of Christ. And you know what? 
Sometimes the aroma is beautiful, and sometimes it's more of a stench. And, and here's what this means, or here's what this is getting at. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's death to death to them. But to us who are being saved is the power of God. But for us who are being saved, it's a sweet-smelling aroma. You know, it's crazy, right? Like, obviously, the world does not like our scent. Like, we can get that. We can understand that. The aroma of Christ is not, for the world, necessarily an exciting thing. Our values don't match up with their values. Our our narrative of the death and resurrection and loving everyone, regardless of race, gender, social status, we love everyone because everyone's in Christ and new creation. Like, our narrative, our values, our beliefs, the world doesn't like. They want to pit us against each other. They want us at odds with each other. And we're saying, man, at the foot of the cross, we're all equal, we're equally sinners, and we're equally loved. And we have a different narrative that the world does not like and does not want. And for the world, our aroma is more of a stench. And that's understandable. Because we're going to live differently. We're going to do life differently. We're going to love differently. And for the world, it's this aroma of death to death. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God to salvation. To us who are being saved, you go, man, it's just beautiful. It's crazy to think this too, right? Have you ever had something that was like maybe once a gross smell to you, but then became a beautiful smell? Like something like you couldn't stand? Like, I don't know. I'm starting to like weird smells like as I get older. Like, I like garlic now. I don't know. Like, even like the smell. Like, okay, don't judge me. But like, there's some of those things, right? Like there's some, like as like my taste changes, as I change, I go, oh my gosh, this, this aroma used to be nasty, but now it's beautiful. There's some things that will always be nasty. Boys, middle school, locker room, always be nasty, right? But there's some aromas like, oh my gosh, like over time, like God, that's so beautiful. Here's what's crazy. He's saying, you know what, before the cross, maybe you can remember this. You didn't want Christians. You didn't like Christians. You didn't want to be around Christians. You didn't like what they gave off. And then you became a Christian and you're like, wait a second, this smells completely different to me now. It's life to life. It's so different. Something has happened. Something has changed. And he's going, this is what's happening. You're bringing the aroma of Christ to the world. Everywhere you go, you're that fragrance of Christ. That's what we're to be. And you will be misunderstood. That smell will be misunderstood at times. But when they get saved, they go, oh my gosh, what used to be repulsive is now beautiful to me. This is now something I long for and crave and care for. This is what Paul's saying. And then we'll end with our last point. So Paul's talking about, it seems like we lost. The doors were open. We're triumphant in Christ. We're the aroma of Christ. And he says, and here's our job. We're to be those heralds. We're we're to be those people that come back before the war, like after the war is over and before the parade, we come back saying, guess what? We won. We won. We're here to to get the word of God out. So it's verse 17. He says, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Listen, preachers sent. Here is the idea. We are sent. He goes, you know what? There's people who are peddling the word of God. They're, they're abusing it. They're misusing it. They have other motives mixed in. We're men of sincerity. Um, actually, no, it's really interesting. I'll just throw this up to the definition. This, even this Greek word of peddlers, there are peddlers of the word of God. It literally means a merchant who cleverly deceived buyers into purchasing a cheap imitation of the real thing or misrepresenting his product in order to increase his profit. I mean, you think about, and if you've ever been, like, scammed by a pet, like, there's nothing, like, I hate that feeling. He goes, we're not this. We're not trying to cheapen the product. We're not trying to water down the product. One translation says a peddler is an adulterator, an adulterer, adulterator or they're watering down for gain. Like, they're adulterating. They're, they're changing it up, or they're watering it down for gain. So the idea is, I sell wine. I'm not going to give you the good stuff. I'm going to water it down to increase profit. And there's people who peddle the Word of God. They water down the gospel to increase profit. 
to increase maybe listeners. I'm going to water this down so I can grow this bigger. Paul goes, that's not us. We're not pillars of the word of God. We're men of sincerity. We speak in the sight of God. And like meaning God sees us. He knows our heart. He knows our actions. We're speaking of Christ, the mysteries of Christ. Even those characteristics, sincerity, commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Paul's like, everything's in the light here. I want you to see that we're going to do this differently here. We're just here to tell people, we're just here to go around and say, guess what? Jesus has won. And we're going to now celebrate, and there's a parade coming. And do you want to join the parade? Do you want to be a part of this? And we're those heralders. We're those who go out and say, hey, he's coming. He's coming. Jesus is coming. He will come again. He's coming to rule and reign. And he's coming. He's coming in a triumphant way. We saw him on the cross. Tri- triumph, which looked like the defeat, but he, in reality he won. But he will come and rule and reign, and there will be another parade. And Jesus will come back, Revelation 19, on that white horse and the armies of heaven with him. And he will come and rule and reign. And we're, the, we're not peddling the word of God. We're not trying to water this down to you. We're not trying to cheapen the gospel to you. We're going to be medicine sincerity in this process. And this is our heart and our desire for our church. Amen.